Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today for our podcast, we have a conversation on elections and the central thing for the church. Okay, Scott, well, uh, this is what's on everybody's mind. It's dominating the Twitter feeds, the Facebook's post, and uh, that's the election and the surprise of Donald Trump being elected as president. Uh, What are your thoughts on that for our listeners? Well, I want to say two things. The first is that uh, we're surprised only because the media and the pollsters were wrong. And that uh, they've, they've decided they want to blame uh, the silent Trump supporters who didn't tell the pollsters what they were thinking. I think that's probably a load of hogwash. I think what instead of the social media blaming voters, I think media and the news people and the pollsters need to become more accurate in measuring what people's voting uh, actually is. We have too many people in the United States voting for us not to have a really good handle. And it was obvious that that uh, President-elect Donald Trump and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton were about 50-50. Any measurement that was a not about 50-50 was simply inaccurate, and we need to figure out why. The second thing is this. There's a deep irony that has happened in this election that I think deserves far more consideration by Christians and uh, news media, and that is the irony is the Democrats who have fashioned themselves sometimes almost uh, with a self-righteousness and insufferability as being for the marginalized are not really recognizing one major marginalized people in the United States. I see four major marginalized people. Uh, We could probably add to this. uh, We could easily add to this. But number one, historically, African-Americans are marginalized in our society. Second, Latin Americans, particularly Mexican-Americans, have been marginalized and are marginalized. Third, probably to a lesser degree, but nonetheless very much real, uh, are Asian-Americans who have been marginalized. And this election demonstrated that the working poor feel marginalized and their sense of resentment rose to a fevered pitch And they voted. They were a big uh, part of the voting of Donald Trump. And I think that uh, anybody who wants to be for the marginalized needs to be for all the marginalized. And this is where I think the church needs to respond. We need to see that there are many people in our society who are hurting from policies, decisions, structures and power. And we need to respond to all the hurting people in the church and welcome them all to the table in the people of God. So there you go. Two thoughts about the election. Yeah. Uh, So if anyone was wondering what Scott's thoughts were, those are there. I'm wondering um, what you think about the implications for this election that it has on the church. You mentioned how we should respond as the church, but what are implications that you see, if any, right now? Well, I think that we should we should have we should be we should have become far more sensitive to the wounds of people. I mean, I heard people demonizing the people voting for Donald Trump. 
when Hillary Clinton can stand up and say that that people supporting Donald Trump are a basket of deplorables, this by someone who claims she's a United Methodist and for social justice, we can't call anybody in our society deplorables. Uh, in fact, that basket of deplorables that she used evidently is a whole lot bigger than she anticipated. But the point I would make is, is not let's get after Hillary Clinton for what she said, although I think that that moment uh, shifted some in some major ways the election. I, w- I would say that we as Christians need to figure out who these people are, why they are so resentful of what's going on, and what we can do as Christians, inviting them to the gospel, uh, inviting them to coffee, finding where they are, and listening to their stories, and and realizing that uh, the gospel uh, can speak to all people in all ways, and, and we need to be at the vanguard of that presentation of the gospel to all Americans. That's good. Um, well, we don't want to spend our whole time today talking about the election, but that's actually a really good segue into um, the topic that we were going to spend most of our time on today. And uh, really, the idea for this topic came from a former student of yours and listener to the podcast, Jam- Jamie Staples. And uh, Jamie sent you a note and said, Scott, been listening to the podcast. You mentioned primary and secondary issues in terms of what churches should split over or not. I believe you mentioned primary issues being issues such as dealing with the person of Jesus and secondary issues um, being things such as um, what we should stay and work out together being issues like women in leadership or sexuality. And I'm wondering if you could speak more about that sometime. So any thoughts on that to get our discussion started today? Yeah, um, this is a, this is a difficult issue. Uh, and it's a good question by Jamie, and he's a good student and a good pastor. So I I want to start out by saying this, that uh, we need to make central things central and peripheral things peripheral. All right. Now, that's that's an easy theory. The difficulty is that what some people think is peripheral, other people think is central. But let's start with this, that the center of our faith is the gospel. Uh, I've outlined my understanding of the gospel in the book, The King Jesus Gospel. But let's just say it is at the center of our faith, our statements like uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised, uh, that he ascended, and that he's returning, and that God will be over all and and will judge all and will reconcile all things to himself. Uh, Let's say also that the statement of faith in 1 Corinthians 15 leads to things like the Apostles' Creed and eventually to the Nicene Creed. So let's just say that it's, it's fairly easy for Christians to unite on the gospel and the essential creeds of the Christian faith. It may not be totally adequate, but we have to begin there. And with people begin there, we have to be able to make deductive moves, inductive moves, logical shifts to see what is very consistent with that and what things are not consistent with that. So we start there. The second thing is this. This is where um, some people differ with me today, but I'm willing to uh, take a stand. The church is fundamentally and essentially a conservative institution. Many people balking at the church on any kind of issue uh, have more of a progressive spirit that they they have drawn from contemporary culture and drawn from, let's say, the history of the Western world. The church conserves 
the gospel and over time has made changes, has adapted, has accommodated in ways that are consistent with the gospel so that uh, the church becomes not afraid of change, but has a mechanism of change, a change that expresses the core of what it is. That's a genuine conservative. That's not Republican. Uh, that's not Democrat. That is a theological conservative. It's someone who knows the tradition and knows that changes need to be consistent with that tradition. In, so, political, in political theory, this would be connected to someone like Edmund Burke. Okay. So how you're using the word conservative is, and particularly in connection with the church, is how it is intended to conserve the gospel. Is that right? Or is there maybe yeah, a better conserve, definition? Yeah, conserve the gospel and still adapt. As the Apostle Paul adopted and adapted the gospel as he got into the Roman world, as the book of Hebrews adopts and adapts the gospel in its theology, as James adopts and adapts. So as John adopts, all these people are adopting and adapting but they're sustaining the gospel, and their adaptations and accommodations and adoptions are all expressive of the core of that tradition. And so a conservative is someone who both conserves and change, it makes changes in a way that preserves the core of that tradition. So I would say then that when it comes to what's important is uh, this always has to do with things that are, are different and changes. We have to ask, in a true way, if what we want to do, if we want to shift, if we want to accommodate, truly preserves the gospel and its tradition in the church. And I think a lot of people want to re want to be revolutionaries. They mm -hmm. want to start all over again, mm -hmm. but that is simply inconsistent with the gospel. So I feel like... Uh kind of how you alluded to here, the crux of so much of this issue of keeping the central things central, yet um, allowing the the gospel and to be the ones who are adopting and adapting to the, the culture and the context that we're a part of. Um, so much goes off the rails when we have an inability to have uh, positive and beneficial dialogue between people of different perspectives. I mean, especially in the context we're in now, you just take 10 seconds on Twitter or Facebook, and there is just all sort of, of, of hate, of different perspectives, of an yeah, unwillingness yeah. to look and at least, like you mentioned earlier, listen to the other yeah. side. So yeah. how, how, how do you think or envision, can the church be an institution that, um, for one, we need to be doing ourselves, but also can be, provide a vision for how this can be done in the rest of the world and listening to others who are different than ourselves? Great, great question, Chaz. I know that uh, this comes from Jamie, and, and that is this. I think we need to create an environment where there is a very clear method, let's say rules of procedure, um, let's see, uh, guidelines for discourse that we operate with in the church, that when a new topic comes up, we are not afraid, we are not threatened, we don't start yelling and screaming and bringing down apocalyptic fears that if we move in this direction, the whole world is going to fall apart. People get tired of everything becoming apocalyptic. Yeah. Instead, we say, we, we know our gospel, we know our Bible, we know our church tradition, and we want to take a genuine look at this issue 
in light of the uh, in light of the gospel and the Bible and the church tradition, and that we're going to do this in a in an open way. We're not going to do this behind closed doors. We're going to have conversations. We're going to have discussions. We want to hear people think through these things, but we can't have people in in a sense saying, "Well, I, I just don't I I don't want the Bible to be a part of this discussion." You know, so much of the recent discussions of people who are shifting on issues like same-sex marriage, when, when you read the conversations, you go, I, I wonder how they made that decision. We don't even know uh, how they're thinking. They just seem to prefer that. Well, this isn't, this isn't going to uh, do anything but lead us into a morass of relativism and people saying, I get to believe whatever I want to believe, and, that, and I think my church should go along with it. But no, if we develop in our churches a clear procedure that we are willing to take on all issues, science and faith, evolution, biological evolution, theistic evolution, creationary evolution, we're willing to take a look at this. We're willing to take a look at uh, challenges at the social level. We're, we're willing to take a look at immigration problems in the United States. Uh, and and this is going to I suspect this is going to become a major issue under the presidency of, of, of Donald Trump is that we're going to have to think as Christians about immigration in clear ways. How are we going to do this? We can't just say, well, I have a friend. I mean, this is this is is not really a legitimate argument. We want to say, what does our gospel teach? What does our Bible teach? How has the church responded over time? to immigration issues in various countries. We want to bring these to the table and show how that we can think anew about difficult topics in a way that both conserves the gospel and at the same time changes uh, in ways that are consistent with the gospel. That's good. So I wonder if you have any thoughts for the the pastors or really anybody in church leadership. Um, you know, when I hear you just bring up some different issues, um, as a the job of a pastor, I, there are so many responsibilities. I mean, you're meeting with people, you're preparing sermons, you're preparing messages, and um, to hear all of these different issues. And to, at the same time, try to keep up with what's going on and all of the different issues can be really daunting and difficult. Uh, I wonder if you have any insights uh, just for, for those in pastoral roles and church leadership um, to keep a, a good ear to what's going on in the culture uh, in just a, a way that will be helpful to have honest and positive dialogue uh, and, and are getting different perspectives. Yeah, you know, I think it, it's interesting. Uh, there are probably more changes in our culture today than e ever before, and it is easier to discover what these changes are and how to think about them today than ever before because of social media and because of the Internet. Everything seems to be available to us all at once, all the time. So I, I would say that that um, that pastors and leaders in churches need to have a regular set of resources <clears throat> in the internet world where they go to. One time, John Ortberg said in my presence in front of some other leaders that every, every leader in a church needs to have at least one seminary professor who is a specialist in an area to whom they can go for questions or with their questions and ask for some answers and some guidelines. Um, I have over the years 
been a beneficiary of such emails and questions. Sometimes they've been very challenging, and other times uh, I just walk away being very grateful for the gifts that God has given me and for the life that God has given me that I get to do such a thing. So I think that that every leader should be in contact with a professor or two that they can ask questions for. For instance, uh, pastors write me and say, what's the new perspective all about? You know, they're still asking this question, mm-hmm. and I love to be able to be someone who can be a resource for them about it. I got a question the other day. What's the apocalyptic Paul all about? I sent him a handout that I use. Mm-hmm. Now, don't everybody write me a letter and ask for the handout. It's probably on my blog anyway. Uh, the, other, the other thing is that we need to have a series of resources. Let's say uh, use my blog or use Larry Hurtado's blog or Ben Witherington's blog to keep up with new trends of what uh, is going on in New Testament studies, or Mike Bird's blog, Elwan Gellion. Uh, there are Old Testament blogs, like my colleague Claude Maratini. Uh, there are others out there. There are, there are good resources in theology that you can check on blogs and just skim and read and kind of keep up with what's going on. Buy books that you really do have time to read, not just books that you would like to be able to read, mm-hmm. if you had time. You know, you, we all need to be realistic. How many books, uh, academic books, how many theologically new and creative books do I have time to read a year? Try to keep your shopping to a, a manageable amount that you will actually be able to have time to read. You'll find it mm-hmm. far more rewarding rather than feeling frustrating that you wish you had more time so you could read books. So I think that we have access uh, today to all kinds of topics. Um, mag, online magazines, people read Relevant Magazine, people read Christianity Today, people read The Christian Century, and they keep up with, with new topics, uh, important people thinking about new, to, uh, new ideas and proposing new solutions to old problems. So I, I believe that the Internet is the place to go, but I think pastors have to choose their time wisely and choose their resources wisely so they can stay up and then be in a network of friends. Who, who can say, hey, I just read this book. It's a good book for all of us. Here's a brief summary. And I have students at Northern Seminary now, like Michael Thompson, who's right now, uh, we're just finishing a series of blog posts that he wrote on Walter Brueggemann's uh, theories of economics as derived from the Old Testament largely, and how that can help people think about economics today. So here, here is, instead of having to read a whole book, you can read four blog posts and get a really good idea, then decide if you want to read the book. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of that available today. Yeah, that's good. And I I will um, take some time in in the show notes, um, whether you're on iTunes or however you're consuming the podcast. um, In those show notes, I'll include some suggestions, some of those Scott mentioned, that you can check out and maybe be a regular um, uh, consumer of in that. Um, so Scott, you know, you, you mentioned being, um, you know, being someone obviously who's read deeply and widely about anything in New Testament studies. Uh, I wonder, you know, along this vein, um, what you have learned and the perspectives you've gained from people who maybe have a different perspective than your own, maybe, you know, such things as a feministic hermeneutic or liberation theology, um, in some of those camps that you have found to be very helpful and impactful in your own life and study as you make sense of the New Testament? 
Yeah, uh, let let me just uh, give a little bit of a story on this. Um, when I when I began my doctoral work, I I was studying with James D. G. Dunn, who literally is the architect of the new perspective on Paul, because he's the one who tried to put it all together to reinterpret Paul. So and then N. T. Wright, of course, was a major part of this discussion, and and other people as well. Uh, and I see myself as a part of it. Well, in the process, all of a sudden, I, I started hearing friends of mine who were very much against the new perspective. And, of course, I wonder what was so dangerous about it. And I'd hear them talk about it. Uh, but uh, And I, I would say, wow, that's that's not what Jimmy Dunn believes, because I, I had a conversation with him about it. And I know he doesn't think like that. But the old perspective people, uh, and probably because the word old is not very fashionable for many people, uh, maybe the healthiest term for it is the reformational perspective. They they offered serious challenges uh, to the new perspective. They had to be listened to. And then along comes uh, people like uh, J. Louis Martin and Beverly Gaventa, uh, someone like John Barclay in ways, and then especially now Douglas Campbell, and they offer the apocalyptic understanding of Paul. Well, this this meant, you know, at first I'm thinking, oh, come on, this is a whole new way of approaching Paul. It would it would undo everything I've ever thought. And then along comes Michael Gorman, and he has sort of a participationist understanding of Pauline theology. It's a bit of a combination of the old, the new, the apocalyptic, but it's fresh. Um, and I thought, oh, no, here's another view. Well, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we want to learn what's right. And we have to be open to listening to other voices. So so I read those books, and, I, and I've learned from each one of them, and I think I've grown so that I have my own sort of accommodations of the new perspective to things that are good in the apocalyptic and things that are good in the participationist and the old. Well, you bring up liberation theology or feminist theology. I, I have, uh, you know, as a professor, I have to be a little bit responsible in these topics as well. I don't teach feminist theology as a course or liberation theology as a course. But that meant I wanted to read the best books. And I read first a great survey of this type of literature by uh, Anthony or Tony Thistleton in a book called New Horizons in Hermeneutics, in which he talks for pages with incredible amount of grasp of literature on what he calls socio-pragmatics. And it's feminist and womanist and liberationist, etc., where... Um, where he discusses the, the major ideas of this literature. That helped me and gave me clues of who to read. Then I read in Liberation Theology, Gustavo Gutierrez's great book, Theology of Liberation. I read a couple of his smaller books that came afterwards. Uh, I wanted to know more about African-American hermeneutics. I read an article about it in Currents and Biblical Research, and I thought the person that I wanted to focus on is a man named Brian Blount. So I've read a number of books by Brian Blount so that I could become conversant. I think in all of these topics, uh, Chaz, I've learned, I've grown, I've disagreed, I've incorporated, I've accommodated, I've adapted, I've adopted. Um, I've learned, and, and as a result, I think my theology is richer and more diverse than it was 40 years ago. Uh, and I'm, and I have, I, I look forward to learning more. I'm, I'm not one bit afraid of saying, you know, that whole approach has almost been crushed by this new book, and, and I have to adapt accordingly. I know I grew tremendously in my understanding of how Greek syntax and Greek aspect theory works, 
I resisted aspectual theory for a while, but increasingly I became convinced that the aorist is grossly overinterpreted in, in much of New Testament studies. And I found Stanley Porter's book on uh, Greek syntax to be very helpful. I studied it, I read it, and I, and I worked it into my own understanding. And if we're going to be genuine Christians, we should be on the move, we should be growing, we should be learning from what the Spirit is saying to the churches today. Yeah, I love how you talk about just being a lifelong learner and um, and how that's really what it takes. And I feel like in what we've been talking about a lot today, that that's the foundation for uh, a lot of how we are to have really good conversations is uh, we need to, to be a learner. And I think... Um, intrinsic in being a learner is having courage to have some of your ideas and beliefs challenged. And, you know, you need to, to lean into that and to embrace that reality um, to be able to gain a greater perspective of what you do really believe, who you really are, who God created you to be. And uh, it's not something that happens overnight. Uh, it's an incremental process throughout our life that we continue to gain perspective. And as we gain perspective, um, we have a better idea. We do a better job having difficult conversations that are necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we lead more more fully and richly into our context that we're in. And um, I, we, I don't think we should feel um, pressure or um, anxiety about having to know it all. But uh, what we can do is we can know more tomorrow than we know today and more the next day than the previous one. And um, over our lives, we'll get to be, I think John Wooden you know, is famous for defining success as being um, your possible best that you can be um, in every situation. And I think we get to do that. And I think the world will be a better place and the church will be a better place when we do that. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, hey, any to kind of wrap up this conversation or maybe add a few other practical things, any any thoughts, last closing thoughts to um, bring what we've talked about today together some? Yeah, here's what I'd say. If you're under 50, I think you need to have a person who's, let's say, over 50 or over 60, a gray-haired, bald-haired fella or woman to whom you can go for wisdom about topics where you're discussing. And I think you need to find a person that you think is sort of a, not so much a hero, but a role model of someone who's pastored or led in a church or thought through topics carefully, who has good discernment and judgment, and that you uh, want to uh, meet with them, let's say a couple times a year or once a month, and just go over topics and, and learn how to think with that person. And to, and to become ears with that person, to listen. I, I was greatly privileged as a young professor to have Murray Harris as my older colleague to whom I could go for wisdom and advice. And I never found him wrong in the wisdom that he, came, that he came, approached me with. And, and I think every leader needs uh, these sorts of people. And over time, they need to develop younger people underneath them uh, who are coming to them for wisdom to pass it on. Uh, so that we can develop in the church, uh, and especially among leaders in the church, uh, a wisdom culture rather than just the latest idea and a youth culture where whatever is new is best. Uh, I like to think that uh, there's there's greatness in our church tradition that needs to be conserved and preserved, and that greatness 
has the capacity, as it has over the centuries, to adapt and adopt and accommodate and shift and change in ways that are consistent with that great tradition. Great. Thanks, Scott. Well, uh, we hope you've enjoyed our conversation again as um, one of the, the conversations that we have probably more leaning closer to how is the kingdom taking root now? Um, but we hope that this conversation has helped that reality in your context. Um, so as always, thanks so much for how you share the podcast, whether on um, Twitter or Facebook or any of the social media avenues that you do. We greatly appreciate that. Um, I want to remind you as well, always get a chance if you can to subscribe. That way you don't miss any of the other conversations that we have coming your way. But uh, thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to being with you next time as we'll talk again how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.